It's the Victorian Variety Show. Because I could not stop for death, he kindly stopped for me. The carriage held but just ourselves and immortality. We slowly drove, he knew no haste, and I had put away my labor and my leisure too for his civility. We passed the school where children strove at recess in the ring. We passed the fields of gazing grain. We passed the setting sun, or rather, he passed us. The dews drew quivering and chill, for only gossamer, my gown, my tippet, only tool. We paused before a house that seemed a swelling of the ground. The roof was scarcely visible, the cornice in the ground. Since then, tis centuries, and yet, feels shorter than the day, I first surmised the horses' heads were toward eternity. This is the Victorian Variety Show. My name is Marissa, and that was Because I Could Not Stop for Death, a poem written by Emily Dickinson that was first published in 1890, after her death, as it turns out. You may have had to read that poem for a literature class at some point. I remember having to read it a few times when I was in school, actually. And to be honest, I'm not sure I fully understood what it was about when I was younger, which is understandable, I think. When you're a teenager, you tend to think you're going to live forever. But also, growing up in the US in the late 20th century, death in general wasn't something I had much exposure to. I lost several close relatives when I was younger and my family took me to several funerals when friends of mine weren't allowed to go to funerals yet. But that's kind of the point. Death is not something that my culture generally likes to accept as a part of life. That may be changing a little bit in the face of the pandemic over the last year and a half and other dangers that are pretty common in modern day American society. Unfortunately, mass shootings are still a very big problem here. But for the most part, I think we still tend to see death as something that happens to very old and or very sick people most of the time, usually in hospitals away from the day-to-day experiences of the majority of us. And it's still not generally considered a topic that's appropriate, you might say, for young children. But that was certainly not the case in either the United States or England during the Victorian era. According to a number of sources I've seen on the internet, it's been said the Victorians fetishized death. And many customs that were common during that time are considered weird and excessively morbid today. To put it plainly, I think views like these are ignorant and hypocritical, particularly due to the fact that whether we like it or not, 
due to COVID and the other dangers that we currently face that I was just alluding to, death is pretty much everywhere we look these days. But also, I think many of the Victorian customs regarding death make sense when you consider the reasons they came about. And I think we can benefit greatly in accepting our own mortality by learning more about them. Because as much as we might like to deny it, we're all going to die one day. So today, I'm going to speak a bit about some of the Victorians' views regarding death and briefly discuss some of the customs. But today's episode is meant to be a more general overview. I hope to devote future episodes to specific practices that I find particularly interesting and ones that I would like to discuss in further detail. One of these is the postmortem photography of the time. I think that's fascinating. But I just want to say that if I don't say much about a particular Victorian death practice today, don't worry. I very well may devote an entire episode to it in the future. And in the meantime, I will include links to all of the articles I used to research this topic in the notes for this episode for you to check out. It's not really accurate to say that the Victorians' quote-unquote obsession with death started with the period's namesake, per se. As we will see, a number of factors contributed to the views of the time. But after her 42-year-old husband, Albert, died in 1861, Queen Victoria famously continued to mourn his passing for 40 years by dressing in black every day and insisting that their home remain exactly as it had been on the day of Albert's death. Her servants were instructed to set out his clothes every day prepare hot water for his shaving, and regularly change his bedsheets and chamber pot. And they also left the glass Albert had used to take his last dose of medicine by his bedside. Again, this behavior might strike us as extreme today, but due to high mortality rates during the Victorian era in general, as well as the fact that people normally died at home rather than in hospitals, which, according to Stephanie Carroll in an article called Why Were Victorians Obsessed with Death? Quote, hospitals were still disease-infested holes where people were sent to be forgotten. End quote. It was common for people to develop and practice detailed rituals upon the death of a loved one as a way to handle what was, for them, an obvious fact of life. And before I go any further, I would like to add that even though my focus in this episode is on mourning customs in England during the Victorian era, a lot of what I discuss in this episode is also true for views on death in America during this time, due to high rates of death from tuberculosis and other diseases, as well as the Civil War. In an article called A Victorian Obsession with Death, D. Lynn Hunter cites Victorian death expert Carol Christ, who points out that during the Victorian era, the deathbed played an important role for many families losing their loved ones. An individual lying on their deathbed was often surrounded by a number of loved ones eager to hear their last words, which were deeply valued during this time. 
According to Christ, quote, the use of narcotics was discouraged to keep the dying as lucid as possible in the hopes of hearing a climatic testimony to the meaning of life, end quote. Many family members also created objects by which to remember loved ones, such as photos and portraits of the deceased, death masks, and jewelry containing locks of the deceased's hair. Objects of this kind are usually classified as memento mori, which is the Latin for remember you must die. It's important to stress that memento mori appeared long before the Victorian era, but such traditions played a crucial role in helping Victorians understand death and, as Christ explains, process their grief in a more honest way and, in a more general sense, help to give Victorians a sense of stability in light of the large number of changes that were happening due to scientific discoveries and religious challenges, to name just a few. So just how detailed were some of the rituals many Victorians followed in order to achieve the sense of stability they sought in facing change, future, and their own mortality? In Victorian superstitions, why death was so important, Jackie Pennington gives us a rather comprehensive list of Victorian death rituals, many of which intersect with each other in some way. I'm only going to go over a few of these now. Once again, you'll find a link in the show notes if you'd like to read the whole article. But I'll briefly discuss a few common rituals now. According to Pennington, family members often ordered wreaths that were decorated in black tulle immediately after their loved one's passing so that they could hang these on the door and thus inform their neighbors. They also often stopped all of the clocks in the house at the time of death because they believed this would prevent further tragedy from occurring. And they covered all of the mirrors so the deceased souls wouldn't be able to enter the mirrors and get trapped in there. Plus, many feared that whoever looked in a mirror next would be the next to die. I don't know about you, but I'm wondering how they covered the mirrors without looking into them. And in addition to covering the mirrors, curtains were usually drawn so that the deceased soul wasn't able to leave the house before the funeral. It was also common for loved ones to sit up with the dead to make sure the dead weren't actually in comas during the time leading up to the funeral. These were called wakes and they played an important role in the mourning process because there was a widespread fear at the time of being buried alive which is kind of understandable given that it was harder at the time to determine whether someone was truly dead. When it came time for the funeral, the deceased individual was usually carried out of the house feet first because it was believed that this would keep the dead from inviting other family members to follow them. And the pallbearers wore gloves so that the spirits of the deceased couldn't enter them. Victorian funeral ceremonies were often just as elaborate as the mourning rituals surrounding them, not only to honor the dead, but also because, as you might have already known, image was very important during this period. In Victorian funerals, 
customs, attire, and other traditions, Joe Oliveto explains that mutes, or professional mourners, were often hired because it was believed that their presence would ensure that the atmosphere at the funeral would remain somber. Although mutes were sometimes assigned tasks, such as helping to carry the coffin, their main responsibility was basically to just look sad. Likewise, those who could afford to do so normally held large, well-attended funerals to show just how much they love their recently departed family members. As Stephanie Carroll points out, glass viewing coffins and heavily detailed tombstones and mausoleums became popular partly for the same reason during this time. However, returning to what we were saying a few minutes ago about Memento Mori bringing comfort to survivors, it seems to me that elaborate tombstones and mausoleums also helped to bring some comfort to grieving individuals. Cremation was far less common during the Victorian era than it is today. And definitely in England, more cemeteries were being built outside of cities due to the lack of space for burying the dead within the cities. As a result, in Cities of the Dead, the Victorian obsession with graveyards, Serena Trowbridge explains that cemeteries became quote-unquote sacred spaces for loved ones to spend time reflecting on their relationships with and feelings about the deceased. And this type of contemplation was so deeply valued that reflective graveyard scenes can be found in a number of influential literary works of the time, including Charles Dickens' Great Expectations and Thomas Hardy's Tess of the D'Urbervilles. I have heard it said before that funerals and other mourning processes are usually just as important for survivors as they are for the deceased. And this is definitely true for the Victorians. But that doesn't mean that what the deceased would have wanted wasn't considered. In fact, as Marilyn A. Mendoza says in Death and Mourning Practices in the Victorian Age, many people began to plan for their funerals and burials long before their deaths so that their family members would know exactly what type of coffin, ceremony, and burial that they wanted. According to Mendoza, quote, dying was an open and ongoing conversation, end quote. I've heard similar sentiments expressed by Caitlin Dowdy, host of my favorite YouTube series, Ask a Mortician, as well as the Death Cafe movement that has been gaining ground in recent years. If you're not familiar with Death Cafes, they're informal gatherings where people feel free to talk about death-related issues, whether these involve how they feel about the inevitability of death, or how to plan for their deaths, or maybe how to initiate these types of conversations with family members who might resist having them. It sounds to me as though the Victorians not only saw death as a part of life due to the fact that they were regularly exposed to it, but that they actually saw opportunities to take some control over how their affairs would be handled, and ultimately, how they would be remembered. As a result, I think Trowbridge is accurate in saying that, quote, death was not an end for the majority of Victorians, 
but the beginning of a new future, end quote. You might be wondering, isn't a new future something to be optimistic about? And if so, why did the Victorians need to come up with all these rituals and superstitions to deal with it? Well, I think it's healthy to have some fear of the unknown. But that's more understandable, I think, than not thinking or talking about it at all, which is how a lot of us deal with death today. So I think we can learn a lot from the Victorians in this sense. Once again, this is just intended to be a general introduction to Victorian views on death that should help to put into perspective topics I address in future episodes. I don't know at this point when I'll start discussing specific death and mourning customs, and I'm not planning on doing a series at this point because if I were to do that, I would feel that once I did a certain number of episodes on it, I'd have to end it at some point and move on to other topics. And I don't feel that's appropriate for something like death. Not only because I might come across a little known custom that I'd like to explore in greater detail pretty far down the road, but also because attitudes toward death during that time influenced so many other areas of Victorian life and I think helped to make this period so distinctive. But I would love to know what you think. Please email me at the Victorian Variety Show at gmail.com. Or you can leave me a voice message via Spotify or Apple Podcasts. You can also follow me on Twitter, and I have a Buy Me a Coffee page too at www.buymeacoffee.com slash MarissaDF13 if you'd like to support the show financially. And I'd also greatly appreciate it if you could take a moment to rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, as that will help this podcast reach a lot more listeners. And finally, if you're interested, I'm going to include a link in the notes to the most recent episode of my other podcast, Marissa's Wicked Word Nosh, in which I talk about the writer H.H. Monroe, aka Saki. As I mentioned in that episode, even though Saki's writing is mainly associated with the Edwardian era, his most popular works were published in the years before World War I, he was born in the middle of the Victorian era. So I think there's some crossover there. And I also think he's a unique writer whose works should be more widely read. Thank you so much for listening. I realize this is a heavy topic for some but I think it's crucial to discuss it to develop a better understanding of the beliefs, customs, and art of this era. It may even bring fresh insight to some things you read back in school and perhaps may not have fully appreciated at the time, such as the Dickinson poem I read at the beginning of this episode, and this one, Alfred Lord Tennyson's Crossing the Bar, which I'm going to close with. I remember reading this one in several classes as well. So, until we meet again, here's Crossing the Bar. Sunset and evening star, and one clear call for me. And may there be no moaning of the bar when I put out to sea. But such a tide as moving seems asleep 
too full for sound and foam. When that which drew from out the boundless deep turns again home. Twilight and evening bell, and after that the dark. And may there be no sadness of farewell when I embark. For though from out are born of time and place, the flood may bear me far. I hope to see my pilot face to face when I have crossed the bar. <laughs>